Welcome, and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most bizarre, the most high-profile senseless homicides in Maryland are discussed, they are profiled, and they are examined. For this season, season five, the focus is on sick, sadistic, twisted, rapist, pedophile, or, or sex-related type murders. All those types of high-profile, gory homicides in Maryland. And as I stated in the last episode, we have so many of these types of murders and homicides in Maryland that this is just part one. Part two will be featured later. So with that being said, on this episode, the sick and twisted rape and mutilation murder of Josie P. Brown will be profiled. And as in each episode, an unsolved homicide that needs attention will also be profiled. And this episode's unsolved homicide that will be examined is the shooting murder of 29-year-old Katea Nelson. Now, let me tell you something. Some homicide cases have you so fucked up, you'd be like, what? Yeah, like here in the state of Maryland, we have, we got our regular shootings or our average killings or somebody got robbed or whatever, or drugs was the motive or somebody was high or drug related or whatever. But then there are some homicides that when they happen, even like to numb, like to, to this whole numb state of, we're basically we're numb to homicide. You know, we're almost numb to it. But for a state as numb to homicide as Maryland, some murders, when you hear about them in this state, you still go like, damn, like, what the fuck? Honestly, like, damn. And this next case that I'm about to discuss is one of those cases. Let's talk about the gruesome, horrifying murder of 27-year-old Josie P. Brown. Now, this is the story of how a monster could hide in plain sight. Now, y'all remember MySpace? I mean, before there was Facebook, before there was Instagram and Twitter, uh, TikTok and all that, there was MySpace. It was like the first Facebook where you, you, you could like create a profile, you could say whatever you want to say, you could post pictures or whatever, you could say what you was doing, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, this dude, his profile name on his MySpace page was Big Thick Dude. Now, that's the name he went by on his page, but his government name was John C. Gamer. This 21-year-old was a senior, senior biochemistry major and science major at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, also known as UMBC. This handsome former football player at Cudston Town University, he stood six feet six, 225 pounds of pure muscle with absolutely no criminal record whatsoever, not even a speeding or parking ticket. Dude was so wholesome and clean cut I mean, that he still drove all the way from his dorm room at UMBC in, the, in Baltimore County to his parents' home in Southern Maryland to enjoy dinner with them every Friday night. With just a few months left before graduation, you would think that with a major as vigorous and challenging as biochemistry that John would be focused on his studies. 
Yeah, you would think he would be focused on his studies, his his schooling, but on the evening of December 29th, 2005, John had other things on his mind. On this evening, John logged onto the social media site MySpace in search of an instant booty call. Online, he sent an instant message to 27-year-old Josie P. Brown, and she responded. Not only did she reply back to his messages, but she agreed to hook up with him for a date, even though they had never met in person. So John drove over to Baltimore City, where they met in the Hampton area of the city. At 7.30 p.m., he picks her up in Hampton, and together they eat, they drink at Tapas Titro on Charles Street in Mount Vernon. About an hour later, around 8.30 p.m., they went, like, they both went to a few other bars in the Mount Vernon area, including the Red Maple on Charles Street, Diana's Restaurant and Lounge on Preston Street, and Club Hippo on Eager Street when it was open. They both got drunk, and they both got drunk at each one of these bars, and according to John, after they had already been kissing and got a little touchy-feely, around midnight, Josie agreed to go back to his dorm room with him to get busy. And as he drove to his dorm room at UMBC, with Josie sitting in the passenger seat, at first everything was cool, everything was cool. But when Josie got a phone call from an ex-boyfriend, that's when things went left. And suddenly she changed her mind about going to his dorm room and was like, nah, I'm good. She was like, nah, you can drop me off at my car, whatever. So they argue. John is pissed because he thought he was going to get some, but Josie is like, take me to my car. They argue about the phone call that she just got from her ex-boyfriend, and John, enraged, he kicks her out of his car on the side of the beltway, which was Interstate 95. I mean, that is a hell of a first date, don't you think? I mean... As of that childish shit wasn't, wasn't bad enough, John could have just kept on driving, but he just could not let the rejection go. About seven minutes after John had kicked Josie out of his car on the side of the damn beltway, he came back to where he had dropped her off. Like, when he found her, he hopped out of his car, raped her, sexually assaulted her with a stick, then like threw, beat her to death with a piece of heavy wood. Then as an extra act of brutality in an effort to keep her from being identified, John sliced off her fingertips, hacked out her jawbone, slivered off of her nose. I mean her nose. Then he stored up her, all her body parts in her own purse then tossed her battered corpse over a guardrail where she ended up in a ravine close to the interstate at Interstate 95 and the Baltimore Beltway in Arbutus. After Josie's horrific slaying, this clean record college clean cut kid drove to his dorm room, took a shower, washed his clothes, washed his car, and threw Josie's purse in a trash bin at his apartment dorm room complex. What the hell was on the mind of this killer? A brutal, violent murderer. I mean, Josie had planned a trip with her sister the next morning 
And when she didn't show up for it the next day, nor did she answer any of the many phone calls and text messages that were sent to her, Josie's family knew that something was wrong. Her family decided to call the police department and report her missing. The investigators began an investigation and they were able to trace Josie's cell phone and see that the last phone calls that she received were from John's home and they decided to bring him in for questioning. John agreed to be questioned without an attorney present and at first he told the investigators that yeah, he had hooked up with Josie on the 29th, but that he had dropped her off at her car in Hampton after they hooked up, and that after that, he drove back to his dorm room. Based on his inconsistencies in his story, and because he had obvious scratches on his face, the detective got a search warrant to search John's car, and when they did, they found drops of Josie's blood in it. Later, after a more thorough investigation, and when investigators were able to retrieve phone records and determined that John's phone placed him directly in the area of Arbutus when he said that he was dropping her off at her car and to make matters worse for John. See, this is how God works. Y'all don't even understand it. This is how God works. Detectives were able to get Josie's phone records and they were able to pull up a phone, like a phone mail message that John had accidentally left on her phone maybe like during the struggle and the fight for her life or whatever but basically john must have called butt dialed or whatever accidentally and the phone kept recording in the 42 second recording you can hear like thumping sounds or whatever you can hear a bunch of yelling you can hear a woman's muffled screams basically you can hear him killing josie those calls came from john's phone clearly so on February the 7th, 2006, John is brought in again for questioning. After detectives confronted him with all of the evidence against him, John eventually confessed to his role in Josie's murder. He told the detectives that, yeah, they did hook up after meeting just hours earlier on MySpace. He said that they went out to a bunch of bars in Mount Vernon and he got drunk. As they were out drinking, according to John, he said he had asked Josie what was on her mind. He said he straight asked her what was on her mind. And she said sex. Now, John told the detectives that he thought maybe he was going to get lucky, especially after he said he spent over a hundred hours on her. He told the detectives that after she got a call from an ex-boyfriend, the whole mood went left and she changed her mind about going to his dorm room. He told the detectives, you know, I was getting confused. It seemed like the evening was going well. She took a call from an ex-boyfriend and started cursing at me. He said that they argued and during the argument, he grabbed her cell phone out of hand and tossed it out the window, which that shit would have, ooh. Then he said she scratched and clawed his face. After that, John said that he screeched to a stop, got out, walked over to the passenger side, yanked Josie out of his car, and left her on the side of the highway. Not satisfied with just that humiliation, a few seconds after John threw Josie out of his car, the college student told detectives that he came back and offered to drive her back, drive her back home or to her car. But when she started hitting and cursing at him, he said that he went into a blind rage and started beating her with his fist. 
John confessed to detectives that he found a club-like stick that had a pointed end on it, and he started beating her with that. While he was beating her and ending her life, John was yanking off her clothes and savagely raping her with a stick. In John's video confession, he said, I was trying to make her feel like shit would demean her. I was trying to make her feel like I had felt. After John beat Josie to death, he confessed to the, the detectives that for good measure, he pulled out a small pocket knife, cut up her face and fingertips to try to prevent her from ever being identified. I tried to clean up the stuff I had in there, like the nose, the jaw, stuff like that, he told the detectives. Telling the investigators that he learned how to cover his tracks and get rid of evidence, he told them that he learned how to do all this stuff by watching CSI. When he got back to his dorm room, he said that after he got after all of this and when he got back to his dorm room, he took a shower. He sent her, he also sent like an email or two to make it seem like he, like she was still alive and he just didn't know where she was. He even confessed to the detectives that a few days after he murdered Josie, that he came back to the area of where he killed her, armed with a flashlight, just to make sure that he didn't just dream this whole night and for closure and to ease his mind. He did all this like three in the morning. After basically completely fucking the detective's heads up with, the, with this whole bizarre confession, John tops it off by wondering out loud about his future chances of landing a decent job. He says, I hope this situation won't make a huge mark on my future career. Yeah, I mean, I have no prior history of violence or anything like that. Wow. Literally, like, just wow, the entitlements. Anyway, after John confessed, the search for Josie's body was over as John led the detectives to her nude remains in the wooded ravine down an embankment off of I-95 near Arbutus. Josie, the, the mother of a young daughter, was finally found naked except for a pair of socks. She had been missing for 40 days. You would, you would think that with a confession like this, you know, because the, the whole case would be case closed, it would be solved, it would be over, you know, but no, John insisted that just because he was mad and beat her to death, and even though he had went back to her deliberately after he kicked her out of his car, strictly to kill her, he decided that he was going to take his case to trial because he wasn't guilty of first degree murder. John's defense lawyer, her only strategy was blaming everything on the alcohol. She used to play straight Jamie Fox and blamed it on the alcohol, saying that they both had consumed like a great deal of alcohol. John's lawyer basically said that all the drinking combined, combined with his rage at being rejected, that's caused him to snap and that's not premeditated murder. But let me tell you this, forget about all that. When the medical examiner when she got on that stand and testified about how Josie suffered more than 70 bruises and most of her face was removed and pulverized, including her jaw, her nose, and teeth, a Baltimore County jury of six women and six men deliberated for only five hours 
after a four-day trial before finding John guilty of the first-degree murder and rape of the young mother. At John's sentencing hearing a week later, the former football player and college student, now just 23 years old, compared himself to the main character to the main character in the book of Mice and Men, where this big retarded dude, whatever, or mentally challenged, I should say, accidentally kills somebody. He basically was saying he accidentally killed Joseph because he didn't know his own strength. Oh, I, I can't believe I could do such a horrible thing, he said at his sentencing hearing, with tears streaming down his face. He continued, words cannot describe how much I wish this event hadn't happened. At one point, the prosecutors wanted John bad. I mean, he was even facing the death penalty. And he had no, he had worried, like, I couldn't believe he's facing the death penalty. He worried about getting a goddamn job. But anyway, that college shit was done. In the end, he ended up begging for his life, and the jury decided to spare his life, and he received a sentence of life without the possibility for parole. After John was sentenced, his father, who was at his sentencing hearing, yelled out, I love you, son. And John's mother released a statement to the press that read, This was just not in his character. Something happened to that boy, and we will never know what it was. Never. Now, come on now. For the obvious reasons, the reason why this case was notorious in the state of Maryland, I mean, come on, clean-cut college kid, no record, not even speeding ticket. Dude, was this something that you fantasized about as a kid, just all of a sudden taking out a pocket knife and going across somebody's face? And then you can't take rejection? You can't take rejection that bad that you, first of all, you're going to kick out, mm, throw out somebody's cell phone? Oh, I can't even, and then snatch it out my hand? And then not even that, but to, wow, yo, you gonna kick me out on the side of I-95, really, yo? I mean, I don't know. This is exactly why why I don't date online. I mean, why why I don't date nobody. I just meet with somebody that I just don't know for reasons just like this. Just like this. He can't be that serious. I mean, he tripping because he spent $100. I mean, wow. When I heard about this case, I was like, wow. Seriously, I was like, damn. I mean, I was like, all of a sudden, I said, honestly, you're a budding serial killer. Really, there would have been other victims, honestly, to tell you the truth. For you to kill somebody, think about it. For you to kill somebody and then for you to go back and check, like, the remains and stuff like that, that's, wow. Like I said, that this right here was a budding serial killer. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, he showed signs of about going back to the scene and stuff like that. I mean, I wonder, was it something deeper than her just saying no? Or were you really tripping about over $100? Seriously? I mean, was you that horny? Honestly? It's ridiculous. I mean, he basically ruined his, his own life. Forget about, you know, the like what he's done to the victim. That's obvious. I mean, in her family. Um, I'm quite sure she wasn't expecting nothing like this. I mean, she was a young mother. But for him to have such be surrounded by such positivity with, you know, a decent education, not having a criminal record, you know, supportive family, um, supportive parents and stuff like that. And you decide all of a sudden you want to play human face off. You really do. I, 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 I couldn't even believe when I was 
what I was reading when when I was hearing about when I heard about this case. He's gonna always be known as the MySpace killer. Yeah, this John Gamer will also. I mean, this is a case that's gonna go down in history where he's always gonna be known as the MySpace killer. They have a Craigslist killer, and this he John Gamer Gamer was the MySpace killer. Moving right along into this episode's unsolved homicide. Before I do, let me just mention that, like in each season before this one, there will always, always be an unsolved homicide that needs attention that will be discussed and profiled. I mean, that's every true crime podcaster's dream is either to solve an unsolved homicide or to exonerate a person that has been wrongfully convicted of a crime that they did not do. Now, believe it or not, every person that gets killed in Baltimore or in general in Maryland, I should say, um, every case, every homicide case, these cases don't always make the news or they don't always make Murder Inc. They don't always make online news or they get almost zero coverage. It's more like a victim gets killed and that's it. You don't hear nothing else about it. You pretty much sometimes don't hear anything about it. Sometimes there's no news write-up. There's no real investigation. There's no coverage. The case is not discussed with nobody. It was like the victims, they was here one minute and they was gone the next. God forbid if the victim had a past, you know, God forbid if they had a record or something like that, you know, it's like the news media sometimes look at it as though, oh, well, it was kind of like inevitable. It was fate for them to be uh, a victim of homicide. And they expect the victim's family is just expected to just pick up, move on with their lives like ain't nothing ever happened. Well, guess what? Let me tell you something. On this podcast, we give attention to not only notable high-profile homicide cases in Maryland, but a focus, a general piece of this podcast a general focus is also on unsolved homicides that may or may not have received the attention that they deserve. They may not have received um, the press that they deserved or some of these unsolved cases. It seemed like nothing was done. On this podcast, they will receive the, the coverage that they deserve, the attention they deserve, the recognition that they deserved. So with that being said, this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting death of 29-year-old Katea Nelson. On Monday, June 11, 2018, Baltimore City Police were kept busy as they responded to the 100 block of North Fremont Avenue around 10.49 p.m. for a report of a shooting. And once they arrived there, they found the body of 29-year-old Katea Nelson. Katea was rushed to an area hospital with gunshot injuries, but she was pronounced dead shortly after. Katea was from the 2700 block of Ellicott Drive in West Baltimore, and she was the mother of two young children. Unfortunately, she was the third of two other women who were shot and killed within just three days in Baltimore City. And it's cases like this that just blend into not getting solved because detectives are kept busy. They kept running around like chickens with their heads cut off because right when they're on investigating one homicide, they get called to investigate another homicide. 
either way, whatever, who did what, there's no reason that this homicide should still be unsolved. And y'all know the police can't and ain't gonna do it themselves. So if you know of any information or clues that can lead to an arrest or conviction in this unsolved homicide, please, please do not hesitate to call Homicide Detectives at 410-396-2100. You can also call them at 1-866-7-LOCKUP. You can also send them a text message at 443-902-4824. You can email them at homicidetips at baltimorepolice.org. Once again, those numbers are, you can call cold case detectives at 410-396-2100. You can also call homicide detectives at one 866 Seven lockup, which is Metro Crime Stoppers. You can also send them a text message at 443-902-4824. Or you can email them at homicide tips, that's tips with an S, at baltimorepolice.org. You can remain anonymous people. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast for updates on future spine tingling, hair raising, high profile homicides occurring in Maryland. Also, for paid subscribers, be sure to check out the real, the raw, the unedited truth of how and why I do what I do. The real reason why I got into uh, podcasting and true crime, why I even started a true crime podcast. A lot of people think that, boom, I just woke up one day out of the blue and just decided to start writing and talking about and, you know, profiling killer cases and stuff like that. But that is hardly, hardly true. There is a full-blown method and explanation to all of this madness. And this was definitely no overnight gimmick or no overnight success or nothing like that. Also, be sure to pay a visit to the new website. That's where you can find a lot of, um, basically all of the episodes. You can access all of the episodes that have been released. You can pay, you can check out uh, season one, which dealt with uh, child killers. You can check out uh, season two, which dealt with uh, teenage murderers people that were teenagers and you know uh uh were uh, charged with murder you or you can check out season three which dealt with relationship type murders or husband wife boyfriend girlfriend type murders that were notable in maryland or you can check out the last season which were some 10 of the most uh infamous uh murder suicide cases that occurred in maryland and right now you can also check out uh, last week's episode. You can access, like I said, all of the episodes um, for season five, which is dealing with uh, 10 of the most uh, sick and twisted sex-related pedophilia type, sexually assault type murders. Um, you can also check out the uh, links to 
my best-selling books that are also on the website, which is www.MarylandsMostNotoriousMurders.com. And uh, Marilyn is spelled MDS. Um, once again, that website um, is www.MDSMostNotoriousMurders.com. You can check that to get access to all of the books that are related to this podcast, which are Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 1990-2008, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1, and the upcoming, um, soon-to-be-released, Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 2009-2020. Also, you can check out my local bestsellers, Until I Get Caught, The True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore, and also Junkie, A True Baltimore Story, and Child of Baltimore. Please be sure to tune in next week where another, another high profile, another bizarre homicide occurring in Maryland. It will be examined, it will be profiled, and it will be discussed on Maryland's Most Notorious Murders. This has been a Savage Life production.